This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. But this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please go to the website and sign up for a free call with me. And we can chat about what's coming up on the Hui Deal Pipeline. And also, please leave me a re- review on iTunes. Today, I have Kevin Bupp online. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Lane. How you doing today, bud? So Kevin is the host of the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, and his new mobile home investing academy is taking off. Kevin and I talked probably about two years ago, and uh, you know, just you're kind of the inspiration of uh, having calls with investors here and there. And you know, when I had it, I, you probably don't remember it. But yeah, you're a lot of help. You know, you're you're more on the commercial side and the mobile home side, but a lot of good insight. So thank you for that, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're very welcome. I remember the call, Lane. I, that's actually one thing I'm good at is I remember names pretty well. So, <laughs> oh, <good. laughs> so Kevin, how much simple <clears throat> passive cash flow are you making today and how are you doing it? How much simple passive cash flow? I don't know if uh, I don't know if it's ever simple, but uh, you know it obviously takes work. I don't just sit back on a on a beach chair every day and collect my money from our rental properties. But uh, we're doing quite well. We own uh, over a thousand mobile home uh, uh, rental pads, so we have multiple mobile home parks that we uh, that, that we have in our ownership. And uh, you know, I, honestly, to give you to give you the number, I, I, as a, as a company, we probably have I don't know uh, over over a million dollar. I don't know, probably about a million and a half dollars of uh, of gross rental income a year, but obviously it gets distributed in different ways with our partnership. So it's kind of hard to give you the exact number of the passive cash flow that I get on a monthly or on a yearly basis because uh, we're always buying properties and we're always selling properties. So, but uh, yeah, but it's not simple. I don't know. So so the simple path. I like to name your show, but uh, I wouldn't say that our business is simple. I love it, so it's not work for me. But it definitely takes uh, it takes forty hours a week for me to make it happen. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of the comments from the listeners, you know, they had a lot of apartment syndicators and operators like yourself, and they're saying, well, this isn't the simple passive cash flow podcast. It should be this super active, complicated, doing all sorts of things, cash flow podcast. But the point is to bring people like yourself to kind of show people what different avenues for different cash flow is different sure. of businesses. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we, um, <clears throat> we have systems and processes in place that allow us. I mean, we, we're a company. I'm not just, I'm not just one individual that has a, just a couple of rental properties. I mean, we have a, we have an, a company infrastructure. We're not a big company, but I mean, we have lots of moving pieces, lots of parts of our business. And so, um, you know, it, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort, but we're also in a growing stage. I'm not at a point in my life where, you know, I own X amount of rental properties and that, and I've met my goal. Like I've got, a, I've got multiple goals, but I, I just enjoy the business so much Lane, that I'm not, I don't have a necessarily a monetary goal of like, Hey, once I reach this amount of passive income each month, like I'm done because I really enjoy what I do. I love the mobile home park business and I love real estate investing in general that I, I intend to do it for a long time. And, um, and we'll just keep, keep you know, com- continue to build our infrastructure so that so can support our growth. Uh, we just launched a $10 million uh, mobile home park fund. And so we've got about seven parks. We have seven parks in the contract now and uh, we're really ramping up our marketing. So we're really hoping to add, you know, a thousand other rental pads to our portfolio this year. So we're, and it takes a lot of work to do that. And so you aren't always a mobile home investor, even in real estate. What, what was your, uh, take us back to that point and tell us a little bit about your yeah. Han Solo moment where you uh, <laughs> life took a pivot point there and you yeah. bolts and did what you're doing. 
Well, I got lucky because I never necessarily had to burn the boats and burn the bridges and go from like a career to uh, to a, being a real estate investor. I um, I was introduced to it. Just I was very lucky. I was introduced to it at 19 um, and I had no interest. So I wasn't looking for something. I, I didn't know what I wanted in life at that point in time. I was in, in community college and tending bar part time to make money. And um, just having fun, but really had no, I wasn't driven to do anything. I knew I wanted to do something bigger, but I had no idea what it was. And I just got lucky. I got introduced to a guy that later became um, a mentor of mine and a partner as well for a period of time. But he introduced me to single family homes and small multifamily. And so I started like a lot of people do by uh, buying single family homes. Now, I wasn't really doing a lot of fix and flips, although I did a few. Um, mostly I was looking for cash flow. He really, he was a cash flow investor. He just did it on a smaller scale. And so that's kind of what he instilled into me. And so I got my start by buying single family homes. Um, you know, once I learned that business, I ramped it up in a big way and, you know, had acquired hundreds of units, um, you know, uh, of single family as well as apartment units. And then, uh, 2008 kind of happened to me and, um, you know, the, the world kind of came crashing down. And uh, lots of things changed with me. And uh, I, I went into a stage of my life where I was going to rebuild. And that was 2010, 2011. And uh, I knew I was going to get back into multifamily. I didn't want to get back into single family homes because it just didn't work for me. It wasn't scalable enough. Uh, it just took a lot of time, a lot of energy. And I knew I could get there faster with apartment buildings. And that was a point in time where I was actually introduced to mobile home parks. And uh, I had really ne never had an intent to buy mobile home parks. Never knew too much about it, knew of them, but just never really spent any time or energy learning uh, the intricacies of that business. But um, someone turned me on to it, and uh, here we are today. That's all we buy as our mobile home parks, and we own them in seven different states. And uh, I don't really would have no intent at this point of ever buying another single-family home again unless it was for my own primary residence. Apartments are good. It's just uh, they're really challenging to buy at this point at the right price. So we get the returns we want. We get the the passive income that we're looking for. And there's tons of opportunity in the mobile home park space. So that's where we focus. My opinion is everybody needs to start off with single family homes. That's the prerequisite. And then it's easier to branch off into what do you want to do? Land investing, apartment buildings or mobile homes? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't know if I, I necessarily agree with that. everyone has to start with single family homes. I, you know, I, I think that everyone should start smaller just to I think everyone needs to understand the um, the both sides of the business and both sides of the business are the the actual operational side of the business, like, you know, the landlording side, which isn't the fun part, but like, you know, understanding tenant landlord laws and just how to deal with tenants, how to find, you know, filter out the right ones, you know, get rid of the bad ones. Um, and so I think everyone needs to understand that side of the business. And they also need to understand a lot of times the renovation side of the business, not necessarily, you know, swinging the hammer themselves, but actually how to uh, find and manage renovation crews and get work done at a reasonable rate. And, Obviously, that's easier to do on a smaller scale than it is a larger scale on your first time or your first go around. So if you're just going to be, hey, I want to become a real estate investor, going out and buying a 100 unit property that was in distress, that would be overwhelming. I'm not saying it can't be done if you have the right team, um, but you might be better off if you know you want to get into that business, into apartments, maybe buy a four unit building like that. That's very, very viable. And it's not not too, too much that can go wrong. You know, it's such a smaller scale. It's a lot more manageable. Um, and so I would say that. Um, you know, if I gave any advice, I would say that if you're thinking single family and you want passive income, then why not get a multifamily, but you'll know, keep it four units or under, you know, like a two, three or four unit, because it now you got the benefits of the attractive residential financing. Um, but you're also gaining some scales of economy because you got multiple units underneath the one roof versus just having a single family home. So um, I, I 
you know, my advice would be slightly different. I would say do not do single family, not that they're bad, but if you're a passive cash flow investor, so like if you're, if you're looking to fix and flip, probably single family, but if you're looking to actually build cash flow, start small multifamily and then learn your systems, learn your processes, prove your craft, and then go out in the bigger scale. I think I'll just say that, you know, one of the things that personally it really helped me was initially that big boost of appreciation in the beginning you know, the first half decade of when I got started. And that's just very hard to do when you have a small multifamily. So just keep that in mind too. Well, you can always force appreciation. I mean, so there's, you know, there's considerations like that as well. I mean, if you're buying, if you're buying something fully stabilized that um, is in a market that's at its peak, the rents are already, you know, maxed out, then yeah, you, there's not really much there that you can do other than just run it and, and get whatever returns you're going to get. But um, I mean, I, I guess I may just we, we a lot of things we buy lane have different uh, types of distress to them. And most of the time, one of the distress points, it, it's actually not really a distress point, but a lot of times we buy things that have uh, undervalued rents. And so, you know, the rents haven't been raised in a period of time or they're, you know, slightly or significantly below what the market could bear. And so for us, um, we can very quickly uh, force appreciation in a very big way. I mean, we've we've had deals where, you know, in a matter of like four months, we forced, you know, a million dollars of appreciation. I mean, just just like that by raising rents. And so um, I think that's very common in the mobile home park space. And I think it's also quite common in the small multifamily space because you find a lot of smaller operators and mom and pops that own these smaller types of of uh, multifamily units. And I think that that opportunity exists there as well. You know, you're not going to add a million dollars of value to a four unit property, but you sure as heck might be able to add a hundred thousand dollars of value pretty quickly just by raising rents to market. Yeah. I think you bring up a, a really good point there. Like, you know, normally what people are doing, they're doing the forced equity and they're buying distressed properties. I think a lot of listeners on this podcast, uh, you know, we're the more, you know, we're working professionals, so we don't really have the time. A lot of people are doing turnkey rentals, which, mm-hmm. yeah, you're not going to get a lot, any of that really appreciation or, or stuff like that. So good point. Yeah. Brought up. I've, and I've got a chat. I hope that that's not your business lane to where you have offer turnkey rentals. And if it is, I'm sorry, but everyone's got their opinions. But I don't really I don't like that business too much. It's good for really busy people to a certain extent. But I, I have some challenges with that business model. Um, and it, these are just my, they're just my opinions and that's all that it, it doesn't, it shouldn't make a, a difference in your final decision. If it's going to work for you or not, you got to figure it out for yourself. But you know, the, um, the idea of like, you're pretty much paying retail for turnkey rentals. You know I mean? You're, you're not the, 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 the providers squeezing most of the equity out of it and there's not much equity left and they're most of the time in their markets that are very linear. And so they don't really, they don't appreciate a ton. Like it's not like a Florida market or a California or Arizona to where they're, you know, they're jumping up you know, double digits each and every year, um, in appreciation. And so that, that's my first challenge is that there's not much, not a lot of an exit out of them. If you're getting debt on them because you just paid retail for something, you got debt on it. And, uh, the second challenge I have with that business model is how they're, how they're evaluated as far as the, um, uh, the value is concerned. And they, they use an income approach a lot of times when a single family home, whereas if you go to sell that home more than likely your end buyer, there's a, there's a good chance it's going to be an owner occupant. That owner occupant is going to use a comparative sales approach because that's what appraisers use in single family homes. And so there's a very good chance that if you ever go to exit out of it, that thing's going to be valued from a comparative sales approach and not an income approach. And in some markets, that might hurt you. You know, you, you might not get out of it. It might not be worth from a comparable sales approach what it is, what's what it's worth as an income approach. And so th- those are two big challenges I have with that model. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm not saying that there's people that don't do really well with it. It's just I, th- I, I think that. There's other good alternatives out there. So, 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I started with the Trinky Rentals and it got me in the game. And, and for that yeah. reason alone, I, I suggest it to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people, you know, they say exactly what you're saying. You're not going to get that forced equity or that buying, you know, you're buying retail. But it's like, you know, you guys got to be self-aware. I mean, if you guys have a busy job that where you, know, you have so much money burning a hole in your pocket, you got to start somewhere. And I had a interesting question. I'll let you answer it. Somebody asked me, are there any turnkey rentals for commercial buildings or rentals, apartment buildings? Mm. <laughs> What's your answer there? <laughs> I don't I don't think so. I mean, you know, if, I mean, apartment buildings, I mean, bigger apartment buildings, I guess you could almost look at them as their turnkeys because most of the time you don't manage them yourself anyway. I mean, they're being managed by a professional management company. And so it's just a different business model. I mean, so you could really you could call any apartment any apartment building could be a turnkey rental because you're not physically going to go sit in the management office and you know and manage a hundred unit property you're going to have a professional do it um, and that's kind of the the model behind single family home turnkey rentals is that you're not managing I mean there's a third party provider that's basically doing the renovations and also coming in and actually managing it for you and the, and the same happens in the apartment space like a lot of these apartment management companies will some of them are very experienced in turnarounds so you could literally buy a distressed apartment building and and finding a management company that's got experience in, in doing the turnaround or repositioning and also and then take it over after it's stabilized and so um, so that's just something to think about I mean that kind of exists already it's just not called that <laughs> you yeah. know um, but I, I don't know of any providers that truly offer like turnkey commercial properties that, that, that like, would call it that. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm not sure, bud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that when I call turnkey, the biggest thing that sticks out in my head is the procurement method. I mean, turnkey rentals, I mean, it's you're buying retail. It's right there. You can get it all day. But like apartment buildings or mobile homes, you have to search and search for a deal, maybe a few hundred you have to analyze and it's just you can not- still buy them for retail i mean that's the thing i mean that's uh you know a lot of things that are for sale right now and and, and retail is all relevant like in retail and a commercial property it's all relevant to um you know both the cap rate or whatever whatever return metric you're using i mean it's all relative to like what what meets your financial needs right and so like if i'm looking for a I don't know, a 10% cash on cash return. Well then that's my retail. Like that's, I'm looking to buy something that meets that, that, uh, that investment threshold. And so, yeah, so I need to seek out that apartment building or that mobile home park that meets that. But when I find it, then that's my, I mean, that's, that's me buying retail. I mean, unless it's got like a market rents that are way below where I can know I can force equity or I can, you know, add units to it or, you know, increase the occupancy or something like that. But, uh, um, yeah, it's all relative. So I think that, if anyone's out there that are looking at turnkey rentals and they're willing to you know, be happy with 8% or 9% returns on their money, you shouldn't have an issue finding apartment buildings that meet that. Um, I don't think that's on that. If you're looking for apartment buildings that give you double-digit returns in good markets, that, that's going to be a challenge. But I think if you're in the very end, if you're in the middle or high single digits, you still should be able to find stuff out there that, that meets that criteria. Um, I mean, I know that we're finding – we don't buy much stuff on Market Lane. I mean, every, in fact – you know, of the seven deals we have under contract now, two of them are actually on market listed deal. The other five are not. We, you know, we go we go directly to owners a lot, and so um, and not that that gives us better deals because sometimes they're worse deals. I mean, sometimes like I get owners that call me back and they think their property's worth three times what it really is. You know, just they're not educated. But I mean, we're still finding opportunities all day, every day that are giving us really high 16, 17, 18% cash on cash returns, a lot of times over 20% cash on cash returns. So, so what I'd be interested in is like for apartment buildings, for example. You know, you'll go to a 99% of the brokers out there and you'll get these deals where, you know, even in a good market, like say Dallas, Texas, 
you'll see a 100-unit building that the rent-to-value ratios, I mean, the price per unit, you'll be seeing you know, around 100000 or even more. And at those ratios, you know, the rents will be about 900 bucks. You're right around 1%. I mean, we're buying properties that are like, they, they have to get at least 1.5% rent-to-value ratios for it, the property to even pencil for double-digit returns. Yeah. So like retail in the shorter, like retail, you're about 1% rent to value ratio, but for, you know, the stuff that actually pencils for, a, you know, worthy of a syndication, it needs to be like 2% or an incredible, you know, depressed rents. What is the average well, for mobile that's homes? That's not necessarily true. I mean, because, you know, when, well, I, I don't look, I don't use like a rent to value ratio like you're using. I, I think that more is a, mostly applicable in like single family. That's kind of where you see that rent to value ratio formula being used. I mean, we really just look at what's our real cash on cash return. Like that's, that's my metric. I like, I don't care about cap rates. I could, I could literally care less about cap rates because cap rates are only relevant on a sale. It doesn't matter on the buy. If you're buying, it, it makes no difference what the cap rate is because it's, it's basically a, a value metric that's being applied to how the current owner is operating it and what they think the actual value of that market is. But it factors in it factors in none of the other things that we look for, which is like, you know, what value add components are there and like what kind of efficiencies can we gain in the management of that property that the current owner is not obtaining. So I don't I only look at cash on cash returns. I mean, that's all I look at. And I don't even care about IRRs too much because IRR is kind of the same thing. You know, I look at a lot of apartment syndications. They they will promote a – they don't even mention the cash on cash returns. They're always selling the IRR, and that's assuming an exit in a predetermined amount of time with a predetermined cap rate. So they're basically rubbing their crystal ball and saying in five years, I'm assuming I'm going to be able to sell this apartment complex on a seven cap, um, and that equates to this evaluation. And so based on that, my projections for your IRR for our investors is, you know, 16 18%. I mean, that's literally the big, that's a massive crystal ball. And I bet you if you look at the cash on cash return on that deal, it's probably like six or 7%. I mean, it's very, very low. And so they basically have to exit out of that in order to give their investors their, you know, the, the returns that are attractive that they're selling them on. And for us, it's a little different. For us, we really just look on cash on cash because that's like, that's real money today. That, that doesn't mean that I have to sell the property or that everything, ha- all the stars have to align in six or seven years when we're thinking of potentially selling in order to get my investors the returns that they've been looking for. I can basically give them their returns on a quarterly basis during distributions. And then there's there's obviously icing on, on the cake at the very end when we either sell or do a refinance. Um, in the mobile home park space, typically we're buying stuff, like I said, cash on cash returns, kind of my threshold that we look for. Um, and every deal is different. But I mean, like going in, like I'm talking like Buying it today, how it's being operated, whether the rents are below market or that there's you know inefficiencies with the management, whatever there is, but like how it's being operated today, I want to know that assuming, assuming the type of financing I'm putting put in place is either bank financing or owner financing that I can with with a twenty five or thirty percent down payment that I can achieve at minimum a sixteen to eighteen percent cash on cash return with the ability to push it over the twenty percent threshold in year one. Like by the end of year one, and that could mean pushing over the threshold by raising rents, by infilling units, by lowering the operating expenses, or, or all of the above. That, that's kind of what we're looking at. But really, cash on cash return is the only thing that is relevant to me. What I was trying to capture was a lot of listeners will go out and talk to brokers, and then they'll get these deals out of you know Phoenix, Arizona, for you know the price per unit will be one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And then just the rents are, you know, it's a class C, you know, you're getting 700 bucks a month. And it's just, mm-hmm. 
the, you know, the, the broker will say, Hey, this is a good deal, man. This is a good deal. Take it. Take it. Yeah, right. I know that that doesn't, that, that will never work, you know, next. I mean, I'm sh- sure it's like the same for you. I mean, you have so many deals coming down your inbox and only like a fraction, like 1% or less, even pencil. What's a quick way of that you guys filter? Just, you know, just so you guys don't waste your time on yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's pretty. So, so mobile home parks are unique in that they've got like the infrastructure is the thing that really changes the, um, the expense ratios, the operational expense ratios. And so like, I'll give you just the two ends of the spectrum. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to like, get deep into the mud here with trying to answer this so that it confuses people. But in a perfect world, like the, the most ideal situation for a mobile home park, and we've got one under contract right now that like literally fits this, this exact criteria Every single home in that mobile home park is owned by the tenants, meaning that they just pay lot rent. Okay. And so I'm literally leasing them the land. They own the home. That means I don't have to fix air conditioners, plumbing, electrical, roofs, anything like that. They manage it because they own the home. And then that park that I'm talking to you about also has city supplied utilities, meaning that the city and the, and the sewer supply come from the city. And the city actually maintains the units uh, or maintains the water and sewer lines and actually build the residents directly for their usage, meaning I'm not involved in that process. Okay. And and a lot of times we are involved in that process, but in that scenario, I'm not involved in that process. And so that park, literally my only, my only responsibilities of being the owner of that mobile home park is maintaining the infrastructure. So the roads, uh, the, you know, the sidewalks, the curbs, enforcing rules, and that's really it. I mean, that, that, that's our responsibility. So it's about as low maintenance as you can possibly get. So in that scenario, um, we'd be looking at applying about a 35%, uh, expense ratio, um, that's how much it would typically cost us to operate that park and set aside you know, ne- the necessary capital reserves on a yearly basis, on an annual basis. And so our quick and dirty method is to figure out whatever the gross rents are based on how many units they have occupied in that park, you know, what they're currently renting them for each, and then apply a 35% expense ratio and then kind of see where that where that evaluation falls in place. You know, we'll figure out the NOI at that point in time and then figure out what kind of cap rate that market might demand and then see – what we think it's worth versus what the owner thinks it's worth if it, if it works, you know, like just from a price perspective. And then if that if we're close enough on that number and then we kind of dig in, we, OK, well, what kind of financing might this park qualify for? Because that's kind of the that's the variable, the big variable in the park business as well as financing that's that's available. Like this particular park's a really big one. It's nice. It's a quality grade park. And so it actually qualifies for very, very attractive like conduit or CMBS type financing, which is like 30 year amortization, 10 year term, you know, 5% interest rate, very attractive commercial financing. So then we'll look at, you know, what kind of, let's run out a projection model and see what our cash on cash returns look like year, you know, one, three, five, seven, nine, we'll kind of run it out and see what this thing looks like over that, you know, basically seven to 10 year span. Also with assuming, you know, uh, incremental annual increases as well on the the rents and then so I mean that's but the really quick and dirty lane is really just applying a expense ratio you know to the to the gross revenue of that park and seeing what our NOI looks like and then what I think the value is and see basically what they're asking for and see if my number is anywhere close like if I think it's worth 1.8 million and they think it's worth three we're really far apart. I mean, we're really, really, really far apart. There's no chance of ever probably closing that gap anytime soon. And so that's like a quick and dirty on like that park. That's like a perfect world. Now, I'll give you the other end of the spectrum. Like we own some parks to where we own a good portion of the rental units or or the mobile homes in the parks or the rental units. And so there's a lot more expenses associated with a park like that. Um, We also own parks that have private utilities. And so they're not public supplied by the city that we have like a well and a septic. And so those are more expensive to operate. And so 
in that scenario, if someone's giving me a park that has those components to it, I might apply a 50 or 55 percent expense ratio. And so I take the gross and apply the expense ratio, come up with my NOI, and then again, figure out what my evaluation looks like, just really quick and dirty, and seeing what they're asking for it and seeing if we're anywhere close. I mean, so that's just a really quick way. So anywhere from between like 35% expense ratio to 55% expense ratio, depending on what the infrastructure components look like, that's how we do a quick and dirty to see, you know, what we really have here. Like, is there even an opportunity here to talk about? Or like, are you guys crazy because you're asking $5 million and I think it's worth a million, you know? That's our quick and dirty method. I think that's good. You have those numbers off the top of your head. You don't know how many people can't even figure it a simple percentage plus or minus 10%. Yeah. I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, that's, that, I mean, if you get that part wrong, I mean, ours, that's, that's not a, I mean, if we're close in the numbers, then I dig deeper lane. Then I run, then I, that's when I actually run out like the financial projections. I'll, I'll, I'll basically uh, try to determine what kind of debt's available for that property. And I'll run out like a real 10 year financial model and I'll see what it looks like, like in the long term, based on a assumed type of debt that I think we can get for that property. And I'll see what it looks like, how, how it's going to perform, um, you know, and uh, and if it looks good in the long term and I think I can buy it right, then then we move forward. If I think that, you know, there's something inherently wrong there, it's not going to meet our numbers or I've got concerns, then we, you know, typically will back away and go, you know, go go find something else. So, so and, in, that, uh, but, in, in that two minute exercise, like if there's a spread between what's the asking and what you think it's worth, like, is there a certain spread that you don't even pursue it like 20% or greater? No, not really. Cause what we'll do is I'll actually go back. I think that it's always in your best interest. Like if it's a broker that's selling it or even it's an owner, like if they have a certain number, I walk them through my evaluation and I just say, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find this major discrepancy of where you're coming up with your value. Cause I just, I don't get it. Cause my numbers are real. Like I'm putting the taxes in, I'm putting the insurance in, I'm putting the capital reserves in, I'm putting the, uh, the the management fee and I'm putting everything in here and I'm and I know the market really well that you're in. So I'm struggling to find out why where, where your evaluation of four million comes in. And I've got one of two. Can you can, can I can I walk you through my numbers and then you tell me where the discrepancy is? And I'll just do, I'll play it that way because I want them to honestly I want I'm not trying to lowball them without any kind of substantial proof underneath my offer. Like I've got real proof like this is I know the business. I know what these things are worth and I'm evaluating it properly. What am I missing? And I know that I'm not missing anything, but I want to ask them because I want them to tell me. I either want them to acknowledge the fact that they're trying to rip me off and sell me a, a an overpriced property, or maybe they just have never actually. Maybe they have no idea how to even evaluate the worth of their property, which actually is a lot of times more common than not. Even if it is a broker, they don't know. They truly don't understand how to underwrite the properties, and um, and so I'll we'll, walk through that exercise. And at the end of the exercise. Um, I actually, Lane, I had a call this morning. I had a call this morning before we, uh, you know, probably like an hour before we got on the phone together with a park in North Carolina. They want $2 million. It appraised for $2 million. That appraiser is crazy. I mean, honestly, the most appraisers don't know how to appraise mobile home parks. It's really worth like at the best. And I'll give them that because it's a great area. At the best, it's worth $1.82 million. And I'm talking like that is my ceiling. That's like if the collections are phenomenal and everything is like pristine, no deferred maintenance. And I walked him through my numbers and he thinks it's worth two million because the appraisers think it's worth two million. I walked him through my numbers and he basically told me that he thinks it's worth the extra 180 because it's a trophy property because it's in a great area. You know what? It, that adds value to it, but it doesn't add $180,000 worth of value to it. Like the numbers don't lie. And um, we have a discrepancy and that in his mind is too big of a discrepancy. He wants two million and it doesn't work for me. I can't pay more than 1.82 because that's what it's worth. And, um, and I, and who knows, maybe he'll come back to me and realize that 
everyone else is going to come to him as well and say, you know, I can't pay more than 1.8 for it. And then he's going to come back to me and say, you know what? The market, the market educated me. The market told me what it was worth. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe my appraiser was wrong. I'll sell it to you for 1.8. Or he sells it to someone that's willing to pay the 2 million, overpay for it and, you know, wish them the best, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Um, but they're like, hey, man, I got a deal. I got this deal. You got to take this, Kevin. You got to take you know, this deal. And, and it's all relevant, but it's it's all relevant because, like, for me, I need, like, on that deal, like, it's, it is a phenomenal market. And there's a ton of upside in the rents. And I'm willing to pay for some of that. Like, I'm willing to, like, pay a premium knowing that there's a lot of upside and it's a phenomenal area. But I'm not willing to overpay for it. You know, like, if there's no emotions involved in what we buy, it's like, it's numbers. Like, it's it's got to make intelligent sense. And so you know, for me, like maybe I need like a 15% cash on cash return on that deal going in, but maybe there's another investor that's willing to take an 11% cash on cash return because that's more than they, they, that's the higher return they've ever seen in their entire life. Cause they're used to having their money stuck in CDs or a money market account or a mutual fund or something like that. And, you know, so just because like th for them, it's not overpaying cause it's going to meet their needs. Like it's going to give them the 11%. For me, it's overpaying because I think that I would never waste my time, the energy it takes to run that park, to just, just to get a measly 11% cash on cash return. I know I can go find it somewhere else. And so it's all relative. I mean, everyone's got different investment criteria that they're looking for. Everyone's like, I always tell everyone needs, everyone needs to figure out what their, what's their target return is that they're looking for out of an investment property. Cause like Lane, what, what's a good deal for you might not be a great deal for me as far as like uh, returns are concerned. And so it might not mean that there's something wrong with the property, it doesn't mean that you're overpaying for it because you're paying two hundred thousand more. It just means that it meets your object uh, objectives as far as returns are concerned. It just doesn't meet mine. So you know, who knows? We'll see what happens. But I think I'm right. Maybe he'll find someone else that thinks I'm wrong and they'll pay him the two million. Who knows? But you know what? I uh, for me, the good thing about knowing that is like <clears throat> in my gut, I know what works for me, and I I have no emotions. Being like, if I lose that deal and someone else buys it two million, I I won't lose a a, a minute of sleep over it. Because if I knew if I'd have paid the two million, it's not. I'm going to lose more sleep over it if I pay two million than if I don't buy it at the two million. You know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> it just let it go to someone else. <laughs> yeah, I think that's no more apparent when you know <clears throat> you're talking to a broker and that broker's like, "Hey, Kevin, that the guy just the guy bought bought it for two and a half million, and you're probably thinking, well, that's probably why he's selling now because he bought it for too much." Well, it's funny actually. This deal they bought it 12 years ago. They bought it in 2000 and. Uh, 2006, which was literally the last peak of the real estate cycle, and they paid two million for it. And so, in their mind, they're not taking any less than what they paid for it. And it's not my fault that they overpaid for it. I mean, th they didn't overpay for it in 2006 prices, but look at it in 2008, they overpay. Look at it in 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, they overpaid for it. Now they're getting back up again to you know what it's could be worth. And I think that someone might pay 2 million for it. Actually, I think it's in a phenomenal area. So someone might pay 2 million, but that someone isn't, is it going to be me? You know, it could be someone else and, um, you know, to each his own. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> you got a, you got a great a philosophy there. And, you know, it's kind of like the Donald Trump art of the deal is that, you know, he, he goes into any negotiation and he's just willing to walk. And that's just, you know, he did that with the healthcare, right? Like he, he went in there and he said, no, this is how it's going to be. And if not, no deal. And then they came back. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny how often people come back. I don't know if this guy, well, he was pretty mad at me, but I've talked to his wife before and I could tell I had a good rapport with her. Um, so who knows? You know, who knows? Maybe, maybe the wife talks some sense into the guy and says, you know what? Because they 1031, they bought this park on a 1031. 
They were California people. Uh, they had a lot of money back in 2006. They 1031 into this investment. They'd never owned a mobile home park before, and they they actually bought well. I mean, they bought they they did, did get a good asset. They kind of paid the peak price for it. Um, but uh, you know who knows? Because here's the thing. Here's my argument to him. Hey, if you listen with a broker, because they kept using the argument. Well, I think we're going to listen with a broker if you're not interested. I'm like, okay, sure, that's fine. You know, good luck. You know, um, guess what you're going to pay? Probably you're going to pay a hundred thousand dollars of uh, commissions with that broker. So, and also it's going to go out into the marketplace, and um, either the market's going to accept it or they're going to beat it up. You know, and 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 that's going to affect what you can get for it as well. So just know that there's. You want two million? I'm a buyer. There's no broker involved. Like there should automatically be a hundred thousand dollars shaved off of that because you're going to pay it with a broker, and that's assuming that you're going to get full asking price for it. So you know, really, at the at the end of the day, I'm willing to pay one point eight two. We're not that far apart. We're really like eighty thousand dollars apart because he's for some reason he failed to take into consideration the commission he's going to have to pay. And I kept telling him that, and for in his mind, he's going to get two million net. Because that's what he paid for it, and you know, so maybe maybe the market needs to educate him. I'm not sure. I hope he gets it. I really do. I hope he get they get what they want, and um, everyone wins, right? You know, the buyer wins because they get their property, and they and the sellers win because they got basically whole on a property they overpaid for 12 years ago. Yeah. You know, so to each his own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's the current two week experiment that you're doing, or a longer six month project? That you're Ex- experiment um i mean we just launched a uh, i don't know if it's a two week i mean we we don't it's not really an experiment but um you know uh i don't really look two weeks is too short of a time but six months i mean we've we just launched a 10 million dollar mobile home park investment fund and so um that's i guess that's kind of an experiment not really because uh i mean it's we're not testing it to see if we're going to move forward we are moving forward we just launched it it's the first blind pool fund i've ever done i have done syndications before uh, but never a blind pool fund so um we're, we're kind of not figuring it out, but I mean, we'll see how that goes. I mean, we basically uh, um, plan on acquiring over the next 12 months. I mean, ho- hopefully, um, you know, as, as far as equity is concerned, $10 million worth of mobile home parks, which could mean, you know, probably about 12 to 15 parks. Yeah, we need to fi- we're going to figure that out over the next year and see how that goes. So we've got the systems and processes down. Um, we, we decided to go this route because we feel like we've got the infrastructure in place to to take on a lot more parks now. And so uh, I'll be excited to see how that pans out at the end of you know, the six months as well as the end of the year, see how things are going. So are you we're able, excited. We're, we're super excited. Are you able to discuss some of like the you – know, what are the preferred uh, rates? Yeah, sure thing. And what's the payout um, yeah, the, scheme? Yeah, so I mean it's it's pretty simple uh, and it's pretty normal for the mobile home park space. It's a little different than the apartment space as far as like equity splits uh, versus the general partners, limited partners. But essentially we pay an 8% preferred return and then it's a 50-50 split between general partners and limited partners. That's a pretty um, standard – Across the board, multifamily. Yeah, it's, I'd say multifamily is probably more like 60, 40, sometimes even 70, 30. But, you know, the thing is with multifamily, they have to give they have to give the limited partners that much more because the, the returns aren't as high. So, like, you have to give away more in order to meet the investor's you know, demanded return. So, in our case, with the 50, 50, we're buying great deals and great markets that provide substantially high returns. And we can provide that, you know, basically we're saying a 12% projected annualized cash on cash return. And a blended, you know, or overall IRR of over 20 percent, you know, during the life cycle of that deal. And um, I we I have a pretty decent sized portfolio now that I own, um, not just personally, but I own it with a few other partners. And there's not one deal in that entire portfolio that wouldn't blow those numbers out of the water. And so the deals we buy, they just make sense. They make sense for the long term. And there's a lot of meat on the bone, you know, like so there's 
I have no concerns whatsoever that we're not going to be able to hit those those uh, projected returns of the 12% annualized and the 20 plus percent IRRs. So uh, we're excited, and uh, we've got a lot of investors that are excited, and it's just a fun space. It's a it's a very lucrative space, but it's also a it's a um, it's a niche that is in ever growing demand because it's meeting the affordable housing you know demand that we have that we're not fulfilling as a nation. So it's um, it, it's very interesting uh, niche and it's a lot of fun. It's very lucrative and there's still a lot of opportunities out there. So we're we're having a lot of fun with it and um, looking forward to, to to being in it for the at least the next ten years. I see there's a really good ten year run in the mobile home park space. So we're going to try to capitalize on those next ten years as much as we can. So I don't know much about mobile homes, but I mean, it just seems like they're not creating more of them, right? So what's the, That's it. I just don't know demographics that well, the mobile home park clientele. Yeah. I mean, so you're right. They're not making any more of them, which is one of the big selling points because there's a massive barrier to entry. I mean, as with any type of real estate investment, I mean, one of the key components you look at, like what's the barrier to entry? Like, you know, like there's certain parts of the country where it might be like urban core area where, you don't have to worry about anyone building like another apartment building or another, you know, row of townhomes because there's just no land left. Well, that's not not really the same, um, uh, you know, uh, comparison as like the barrier to entry with mobile home parks. But yet it could be an area where there is land, but the municipalities don't allow them to be built. And so it's it's the only commercial asset class that has a diminishing supply, meaning like there's more mobile home parks being shut down or torn down every year than there are being built now. Um, most of the time they get turned, they get torn down or shut down for redevelopment purposes. You know, like 50 years ago when it was built, it could have been a, you know, kind of an invaluable piece of, or a, um, not so valuable piece of land. But now today it could be in the middle of the progress, you know, the path of progress to where the higher and better use is a shopping center. And so <clears throat> it's pretty common that mobile home parks get torn down for that type of reason. And some of this gets shut down because they're not being run properly. You know, the health department comes in, shuts them down, or the owner just ages out of it and just kind of lets it go by the wayside and it, and it, and it falls apart. But um, <clears throat> our normal demographic, at least in our parks, there's multiple different types of parks out there. <clears throat> For instance, I live in Florida. In Florida, we have some really high-end parks. I mean, they're like they're like lifestyle communities, whereas the people that live in those parks probably actually downsize from a stick-built home. You know, like they're not people that are looking for affordable housing. They're looking for a lifestyle. But our parks that we buy are more – uh, we call them family parks. And so they cater to all ages. They're not like uh, age specific or restrictions uh, based on age. Um, so families live in them. And basically we we cater to good, hardworking families, like the people that make, you know, $12, $15 an hour. Um, basically $40,000 a year and under kind of me- median household incomes. That's kind of our, our base clientele. That's who we're looking for. Um, and uh, there's plenty of really good people in that demographic range that that are, they pay their bills on time. They're looking for a safe place to raise their family and they choose not to live in an apartment, you know. And so that that's kind of our 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 clientele is based on that would either their choice is to either live in a C class apartment or live in a mobile home park that gives them their own parking space. They can put Christmas lights outside to have their own yard. Uh, they can put a shed out back. And basically they, they even have the opportunity to own their own home for, for very inexpensively. And so um, it, it's a if people, people that are in C-class apartment buildings, a lot of them don't even know they have the option of like living in a nice mobile home park. But one of the, one of the ways we actually fill up units, like we buy a park that's got vacancies. We normally aggressively target the C-class apartment buildings in the area and we get a lot of <clears throat> we get a lot of interest from that clientele. A lot of them didn't even know there was an option for them, uh, for them to own a home for the same price they're paying for their you know one bedroom apartment that they're living in or two bedroom apartment. So um, that's typically who we go after. Do you see any like trend for like people under the age of forty to go to mobile homes, or is it more of a forty and over? Um, 
I wouldn't say I see a trend. <clears throat> I guess where it depends on where maybe maybe where your where your park's located. Like if you own a mobile home park in Austin, Texas, then you'd probably see a trend of young people living there because it, there's like no affordable housing in Austin, Texas whatsoever. And maybe a uh, that that younger demographic who might not ever consider living in a mobile home would consider living in it because it's in Austin, Texas. But I mean, for us, it's I, I don't know what the average age range is, but I mean, most of our people. They ha- they either have kids or they don't have kids, but they don't have kids because they've basically their kids are out of the house. They're empty nesters now. And so it's probably like early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, uh, all the way up to some of our parks. I mean, we've got, you know, uh, a, a very good component of senior citizens, you know, that live there and they're empty nesters and they live there. They don't have any kids. But um, you know, so it's a very broad range lane uh, in, in every area that we own a park. It's slightly different. Um, even as far as uh, ethnicity is concerned, like some of our parks are majority African-American, some parks are mostly white, some parks are a mix of those two, and then other parks are Hispanic. I mean, we've got like it just depends on the location they are in um, to, to, you know, to, to really what kind of age group is there as well as, as ethnicity that's in that park as well. Yeah, great insight. <laughs> I just I mean, I think we can both agree that, you know, any B class, C class, non A class is where you need to be investing. I mean, that's the demographics is just staggering and just well, yeah, obvious. you know, it's yeah, it's um, here's how I look at it. If you can't, and this is this is my little trickle down scale. If you can't afford to live in an A class, you live in a B class. Can't afford a B class, you move down to a C class. If you can't afford a C class, you move into a D class, which a D class in my mind is kind of like, you know, you got to pack heat to walk around at night because like it's dangerous and there's drugs, sex and rock and roll. Like there's a lot of bad elements that are going on in the D class apartment building. And so in a D class, uh, if you're moving from that C class to a D class, so you, your other option, if you can't necessarily afford that C class is go find a mobile home park in your town, one that's run properly. Um, and more than likely, you could probably live in that mobile home park and actually have the ability to own your own home. For probably the same price that you're paying or that you might pay for that war zone D-class uh, apartment building you're about to move into. And so – and then here's the the step after that is like if you can't afford – so like our residents that live in our mobile home parks and a lot of our residents own their own home. And so like our average lot rent, like across the board, it varies from area to area. But our average lot rent across the board is about $300 a month. And that's if they own their own home. So they're just paying the lot rent. They own their own home. If they can't afford that $300 a month, there is nowhere cheaper that they can live with their family than that home, than that, than that mobile home park. There literally is nowhere cheaper. So there, if you can't afford to live there, then you live underneath a bridge or you're in a, in a, in a shelter, in a homeless shelter. So we're at the very end of the line as far as affordability is concerned, but yet it doesn't mean that we're bottom, you know, bottom rung quality. Like we're like most of our mobile home parks are nicer than even a lot of C-class apartment buildings in the area. I mean, we do a lot of landscaping, you know, we, 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 instri- we, uh, enforce rules, make sure people have a certain pride of ownership and make sure they keep up their homes. And so you get a lot of bang for your buck in a mobile home park. And then on top of that, you, again, the people that would never ever consider owning a home or thought they would never have the ability to own a home, they have the option now to become a homeowner. Uh, very inexpensively. And um, it's just a beautiful thing. And uh, we we are seeing a very big surge in demand for a lot of our parks um, as rents grow and grow and grow. And so, I mean, we do not have any issues whatsoever with occupancy in any of our parks. And most of the stuff we buy are distressed and they have a occupancy issue only because they haven't been run, run correctly for a long time. But um, once we put the rules in place and we kick out the bad elements and um, start making the places nicer, man, they fill up really fast. There's a huge demand for it. What kind of occupancy are you normally buying it at? 
what we're buying at, it's all over the board. I mean, it could be as low as 40 or 50 percent, um, sometimes as high as 90. But I, I'd say on average, we're probably buying. And and so I look at both physical and economic occupancy, right? I mean, so economic occupancy is really the important thing for me because just because there's a body in that trailer doesn't mean that they're actually paying the rent. <laughs> and so um, I'd say across the board, economic occupancy when we take over a park is probably somewhere in like the 70 percent range. I mean, which is still it's, it's pretty low. Um, but the good thing is once, if they own their own home lane, here's the beautiful part. Like if you're living in an apartment building and you don't pay your rent, um, or you can't afford your rent, all you gotta do is put your mattress on your roof of your car, pack your backpack and your suitcase and you're out. That's it. You move, you go somewhere else in a mobile home park. If they own their own home, they do everything in their power to come up with that $300 a month lot rent. And there's two reasons why. Number one, that mobile home is probably the most valuable asset that they own to their name. And number two, it costs like $5,000 to move a single wide home. So if they can't pay the rent, they're not moving that home, meaning that they're not going to leave that home behind, right? And so number, th- and actually there's a third reason is that there's no, there's no cheaper place they can live. Like there's nowhere else they're going to find to live where they can house their family for 300 bucks a month. And so most of the time we don't have, we have very little to no turnover if they own their own home. Most of our turnover comes from like rental units that we might acquire in a mobile home park. So if they have trailers that the park owns, now they're rental units. That's where the turnover happens because really it's an apartment complex. I mean, really that's an apartment you know, for all intents and purposes. But when they own their own home, our turnover is extremely low and they will do everything in their power to come up with that $300 a month so they don't lose that home. So there's, they have a lot of skin in the game. When I got smart and sold my primary residence to start investing in investments that actually made sense, whoo, I need a place to diversify quickly as opposed to some money market or some high reward checking account. Let's face it, turnkey rentals are cool and some vacations are great, but they don't come around often. I stumbled upon the American Homeowner Preservation Fund. The owner, George Newmary, once apartment syndicator too, is now sponsoring the podcast. His fund cuts the middlemen out to crowdfund the solution to the mortgage crisis in America. They are empowering you to fund the purchase of distressed mortgages and earn returns that smoke any other passive fund. If you find something else better out there, let me know. Oh yeah, they work with families to keep them in their home after buying the underwater note at a huge discount. It's an opportunity to make an impact on families and communities while earning returns. Start investing with as little as 100 bucks in investinhp.com. If you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Something you recently thought about or, you know, something on your wish list that has improve your time savings or improve your quality of life, like using VAs <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, I bought a drone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought a drone recently because I tra- travel to a lot of our parks and honestly, we used to hire people. I mean, this is, this is a small scale, but it's number one, it's a toy. It's a fun toy to play with. But number two, we used to hire people. What, whenever we get a park under contract, we hire people to go out and do like aerial, uh, aerial videos and photos as well as like street level photos. Um, just so we can, number one, see the park before we travel there in person, like, you know, physically travel there. But number two, um, we always want our investors to know what we're buying. Like we want to show them the, the quality assets. And then also allows us to catalog like the before and afters as well. Like, you know, we kind of keep an update on how things looked when we bought it, you know, a year later we'll do another like aerial footage, um, you know, video shoot, uh, with via videos and still photos. Just kind of see like where we've, where we've taken it to in a year period of time. So anyway, Instead of hiring that out now and also to give me a reason to buy a toy and also save us some money, I went and bought myself a pretty fancy drone. So, What did that cost you? 
I mean, there's like they're like twelve hundred bucks. They're not too much, but it's I mean, we were paying someone about about three hundred fifty bucks um, per property to go do what I could do. My I mean, we we had to go visit the property at some point anyway, and um, before we even buy it, and so we just take our drone. Out. It's it, it literally it, it's so small, it folds up to a really small size, and um, it takes amazing videos and photos. It's really easy to use, so. It's been a lot of fun, and it's uh, saved us money. So, like three three properties, it's already paid for the drone. So, <laughs> it's not a big it's not a big cost savings, but um, that was my justification to my partners that we need to buy it. <laughs> Sounds like a good personal and business expense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 fun. So, but plus, it gets really cool. I don't know. There's a lot of cool things you can do. So, we actually we have the Mobile Home Park Academy, and we're we're going to start doing a lot of Facebook Live here coming soon. And this drone literally, it's got a a feature to where I can literally do a live Facebook, uh, Facebook live stream and fly a drone through a park and talk over it while it's flying around, showing the you know the viewers what I'm looking at and what I'm talking them through. That's it's pretty cool. I'm excited to do it. Use it. For, I haven't used it for that yet, but that's that's gonna be pretty awesome. So literally give a tour. Say, hey, I'm at this mobile home park. We're looking to buy it. Let me guys, let me give you guys a first hand view of what I'm seeing and what we plan to do. Here you go. Here's what we're going to do a fly through for the next 10 minutes. And I'm going to talk you through what we're going to do, what improvements we're going to make and where the opportunity is in this park. You should find That's that. cool, right? You should find the one that <laughs> tracks you around. You wear the little bracelet. This one and does. Follows you. This, this one actually good? tracks you too. This one can track you too. I haven't used that feature, but it can track you as well. Yep. Yep. It can track you. You can walk around. It would just follow right behind you. <laughs> That's yeah. Cool. It's pretty neat. I haven't used either one of those features. I literally just got it a couple weeks ago. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm still learning it. <laughs> so the last question here is Tony Robin identifies two large concepts that we continually struggling to gain perfection at. The first is the art of fulfillment and the second is the science of achievement. So what is your first secret or hack to first science of achievement? You know, I think exercise plays a major role in I think everything I do, both you know, achieving goals as well as just, you know, happiness in life and, you know, just how I interact with my family, how I interact with business partners. I mean, I, I attribute a lot of success to to exercise. That's a big thing for me. And uh, I mean, my brain works better when I exercise and I'm healthier. I have more energy. So exercise is uh, probably number one. Yep. Morning or midday. Um, yeah, I, I, most of the time I do it in the morning. I've got two really young kids. So I, if I'm, if I exercise, whatever, I don't exercise every day of the week, but, um, the days that I do, I wake up like about four o'clock in the morning and I get out, go out and get like, you know, two, two and a half hours of, uh, of a workout in before the family wakes up. So I, I don't, I'm not a morning person like that, but I force myself to do it because there's no, there's no time left in the day once, uh, once the family wakes up and then once I you know, go into the office and then I come home at night, like, so a work life balance is a big thing for me as well. And, when I come home at night, I mean, there might be a few times here and there that if I've got to jump on a call, I will. But I'm I'm like family focused, number one. Like it's got to be about the family. I never ever want to lose those special moments of uh, when my kids are small or actually I don't want to lose it. whether they're small or big or whatever. I don't want to lose special moments because I was too busy. And so I'm very conscious of a work life balance. So that's your secret or hack to the art of fulfillment. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, I, I really do. I, I mean, I, I don't know if you have kids laying or not, but I've got a three and a half year old and a five month old. And uh, it's like every day is like such a blessing. It's such a wonderful experience. I, I look forward to it. I, I wake up excited like a kid on Christmas, you know, like to, to go actually play with like my three and a half year old. Like because he every day is like new for him. Like whatever 
you know, like every day is a new, every, every day is a new experience for all of us. But for him, like he's like discovering so many new things every day. And like he, you know, his language or his, um, his vocabulary is like growing each and every day. It's just such a fun thing, man. So, um, that's, uh, it's, it's just a, it's a big part of my life. I don't have any kids and I have an Instagram where I get to go cool places and do whatever I want and wake mm-hmm. up when I want. There you go. <laughs> yeah, man, that's awesome. <laughs> All right, anything we missed and uh, any contact information to get a hold of you? Yeah, no, I don't know if there's anything we missed, but I mean, we can talk for hours and hours, I'm sure, about just real estate investing in general. But um, if anyone has any questions for me specifically, uh, whether it's just about real estate investing in general or, or mobile home parks specifically, um, the best way to reach me is my personal email. It's kevin at kevinbupp.com. Um, then they can also, if they want to learn more about mobile home parks, they can even contact me through the website as well, but, uh, they can go to mobilehomeparkacademy.com and we've got our podcast there and, uh, we've got you know, information on the academy that we teach and, um, you know, so I had multiple different ways to contact me, but those are the best. Um, my personal email again was kevin at kevinbup.com. You can always reach me there. And, uh, I think that's it, Lane. All right. Cool. Appreciate it, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Lane. It was a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, just uh, looking forward to catching up some other time, okay? All right. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.